So today's scripture will be Luke 1, 46. A couple of weeks ago, we started a little three-part series on why we do certain things in our liturgy, and that was communion, and today it's going to be worship. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now on all generations will call me blessed, for he is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Thank you, Stefan. Morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Good? All right. That's great. As Stefan said, Albert is out. He'll also be gone next Sunday. Our series in Nehemiah is going to wrap up at the end of August. And so Albert is also getting ready to finish that and thinking about what we'll be doing next come September and the fall. So he'll be out for the next two weeks. And as Stefan said, we're taking this time here in the month of July to think through a couple of the things that we do on a regular basis. And so this morning we're going to think about why do we sing when we get together. So before we jump in, let's pray. And then we'll talk a little bit more about that. Father, thank you for what you're doing here in this community, here at Regeneration, through this church, in this church. We're grateful to be a part of what's happening here in Oakland. May we continue to be faithful to what you've asked us to do, to be a community of people who do justice and love mercy and try to walk humbly with you. And this morning, as we think about what it means to worship, may we gain it maybe a new understanding of why we sing songs together, but also maybe have a bigger vision for this idea, this word worship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're spending a little bit of time thinking through some of the stuff that we do on a regular basis. Every Sunday when we get together, what oftentimes in church circles is called a liturgy. Now, I'm guessing you didn't wake up this morning and go, man, I cannot wait to get to church and hear a sermon about liturgy. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Now, when we hear this word, I think in a room like this, there's going to be a lot of different reactions to the word, the idea of liturgy. Some of us Maybe we have no idea even what that word means. We're like, what is this? What is liturgy? I don't know what this word is. Why does he keep saying that? Others of us, maybe we grew up in a Catholic family or in some other what's called high church tradition that has a very formal setting and order to its worship. And some people who have grown up in that environment really enjoyed it, really appreciate that. And then other people, and I talk to, I think, a lot of these kinds of people, they hear the word liturgy, they think back to those experiences, and they have sort of a, oh, like, oh, I can't, why are we talking about that? I did not have a good experience of that kind of reaction to those things. Myself, I did not grow up in a high church environment. My parents became Christians when they were college students, and so the whole Jesus thing was very new to them, and then they ended up, kind of the big moment in our family story is we moved to Salinas, California, to help plant a church when I was five years old. And so that was a very formative moment in our family story. And being a church plant, we met and did, you know, whatever we could. We met above a bar. We met in a gym. We met in a business park. We met in a high school auditorium before finally, eventually, that church found its 
home base in North Salinas. And so as a result, when you're a church plant and you're kind of moving around all over the place, you don't have the luxury of a lot of formality. So I didn't grow up with pews and stained glass and all this kind of stuff. It was very unfamiliar to me. But then, as a high school student, I went to a Catholic school. And so my freshman year, I go to Mass for the first time in my entire life. And in some ways, it was familiar to me because it actually took place in our high school gym. And so I'm like, okay, this sort of makes sense. But then the Mass began, and people started standing up and sitting down. And I tried to anticipate some of these things, and I was like standing up or sitting down at the wrong time. And then they repeat or say back something to the priest, and I had to kind of do the like, thanks be to God, you know, under my breath and try to pretend like I knew what was going on, because I had no idea. I'd never been a part of a church like that. And so again, in a room like this, we all bring in different experiences, different background, and maybe even a little bit of baggage with this idea of liturgy. So I hope that part of what we're able to do in this really short series is redeem that idea a little bit for us as a church. So a real simple definition of the word liturgy is this. It's simply the order or form according to which public religious worship is conducted. Pretty scintillating definition. I know you guys are excited. Now, here's the thing. No matter what kind of church you grew up in, no matter what tradition, every single church has a liturgy. And again, it may not be something that's very formal or written down in a book somewhere, but there is a way in which every church, when it gathers together, uh, has a structure and a form to what it does during its times of worship. And I think this is actually a really beautiful thing. I recently read this little book called The Architecture of Happiness. It's actually about architecture, not happiness, just in case you're curious. <laughs> and it was a really fascinating book, and it reveals all the different ways in which our buildings sort of show us things about ourselves, these really deep truths about ourselves and our society. And so I'm going to read a little bit, just a real short passage from this book. And as we read this, of course, the author is speaking about architecture and buildings. But I want you to think about this in terms of liturgy, okay, in terms of the order and the form and the structure of a church gathering on a Sunday morning. All right, the author writes, order contributes to the appeal of almost all substantial works of architecture. We require consistency in our buildings for we ourselves are frequently close to disorientation and frenzy. Anybody feel that, the frenzy of your life? So he says, we need the discipline offered by similarity as children need regular bedtimes. All the parents said, amen. <laughs> we require that our environments act as guardians of a calmness and direction on which we have a precarious hold. Again, anybody feel like they have a precarious hold on a sense of calmness in their life? Now, he finishes this idea, this quote, with this. Our love of order is not without limit. In a work of art, Chaos must shimmer through the veil of order. Beauty lies between the extremities of order and complexity. And this, I believe, is the gift that good liturgy gives us. It helps us frame and hold the tension between chaos and order, between sin and redemption, between what God has accomplished for us through Jesus and what he will accomplish when Jesus Return. So liturgy is a way for us to frame those things, to hold those things in tension. Now, dig into the meaning of this word even more, and you find that the literal meaning of liturgy is this, the work 
of the people. Liturgy is literally the work of the people. And I love this idea because a lot of times we think of what happens, particularly on a Sunday morning, as the job of religious professionals. That's what pastors do. And the truth is, is that that's just not true. Okay? Liturgy, church, is something that we do together. It's the work that happens when we participate together. We relate to each other. We sing together and pray together and take communion together. Church, liturgy, is the work of the people. So here's just a brief list of things that we do together every time we gather on Sunday. We experience community together. We hang out, we get to know each other, we grow deeper in relationships to one another. We have times of prayer, both in our gathering, typically at the end during the final set of worship, and then also we have a prayer meeting at 5 p.m. This is a plug on Sunday afternoons over here in the chapel. If you want to join us today, we'll be over there praying together. We read scripture together, and we do this in a lot of different ways. Stefan just read the scripture, then we hear scripture read, of course, during the teaching time. We also end our service with a scriptural benediction. So scripture, very important to us when we get together on Sundays. And then we take communion together, we sing together, and we give of our time and our resources. And throughout the year, we've spent some time thinking about community. We've talked about prayer. Albert does a great job explaining why we read scripture together. And so for this short little time that we have here in the month of July, we've been focusing on these last three, communion, singing, and giving. Now, just one more thought before we get to that question of why do we sing together, okay? When we are together on a Sunday morning, there's typically two different audiences, all right? There's what I would call the core folks, people who are here pretty much week in and week out. And, of course, we love you guys, and we're grateful for the core group of folks that calls this church home. But for those of you who are in this crowd, sometimes these things that we do can become routine, normal, expected, I'm just going to pick on a silly one here for a minute, okay? I'm guessing that for those of you who come here on a regular basis, if we put you on the spot, you could do the announcement welcome time that Stefan just did. Like, you can do that speech, right? You can talk about the Connect cards and why they're important to fill out and where you put them and how to meet each other and get connected and all that kind of stuff. You know that speech. And here's the thing. Maybe even you're able to mock it a little bit, right? Like, you can kind of make fun of that. And here's the deal. That is actually, in my opinion, a really great thing, okay? It's a really great thing because it means that we're building a culture around that. And if you have nothing that you can make fun of, you probably don't have a very strong culture, okay? So I think it's actually good that we're able to do that kind of stuff. Now, here's the reason, though, why it's important that we revisit these things and that we talk about them on a regular basis. And this is, again, using this somewhat silly example of the Connect card. But there's this whole other audience with us when we gather on a Sunday morning. And it's those folks who are new or visiting. And if you're new or visiting this morning, we're very glad that you're here. And hopefully I have a chance, we all have a chance to get to meet you at some point before you take off. But if you're new or visiting a church for the first time, you might be like me at Mass as a freshman in high school for the first time. You have no idea what's going on. Why are these people singing? Why are they standing up right now? Why are they shaking hands? How do I get connected? How do I let them know that I was here and fill out my information and get in the loop on what's going on? Okay, So we repeat those things every week, even though it might feel kind of silly to those of us who are here all the time. We repeat them for this other audience so that people know why we do this and how they can get connected and plugged in. 
And the same goes not just for those, but for all these other elements of our liturgy as well. It's good for us to remember why we take communion, why we sing songs, why we spend time reading scripture. So let's get in then to that question of why sing? Why is singing something that we do as a church when we gather together? Again, if you haven't been to church in a while, I think this is a really fair question to ask. Why are those people singing songs? I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and it was a pastor's conference, so in some ways this made sense, but it wasn't church either, you know, it was just a conference, kind of a training experience. At the beginning of every session, we sang, we worshiped for 20 to 30 minutes, and as we were doing that, and I knew that this talk was coming, I was thinking about it, and I thought, when Google has a conference, they probably don't sing for 30 minutes before whoever gets up and gives a training, right? So why do we do this? Why is this so important to us? When you think about it, we don't sing very often as a community in our culture, broadly speaking. The two things I could think of were birthday parties and baseball games. Most of you know I lived in Boston for seven years, and for some reason, I have no idea how this tradition started, but they sing the national anthem like everybody does at the beginning of the game. They sing, take me out to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch. And then they sing Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond in the eighth inning. It's actually pretty amazing. If you've never seen that or know that tradition, it's pretty funny to be a part of. But that's one of the only places where I sing with people at a baseball game. Now, if you've been around church for a while, You're probably familiar, again, with why we sing or the reality that we sing when we get together. And you're also probably familiar with the word, the concept, worship. And maybe more specifically, we can sometimes become very familiar with the idea of the worship. You know what I mean? Kind of goes like this, typically. Really liked the worship today. It was really good. That church, that guy Steve, nah, whatever, he's all right. But man, the worship there, so good. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You with me? Of course, you've probably never said anything like that, but I'm sure you've heard people talk like that before. John Acuff created the blog Stuff Christians Like. Anybody familiar with this? It's basically a satire of Christian culture. It's pretty funny, actually. So I went on there and I did a little bit of research because I thought he might have something to say about the worship. And he only had 350 posts, so I had quite a bit to sort of sift through. And I picked out four of my favorite titles. You can write these down and then go look them up later and have yourself a good little laugh. Okay? So number one, how hipster is your worship leader? This is a great post because it has a quiz that you can take. And there's like a scale that will tell you how hipster. I'm sorry, Chris. (laughs) One of my favorite questions on the quiz is, do they own a city chicken? Any of you who are familiar with hipster culture will also get a good laugh at that. All right, second post, how to avoid getting caught looking at the lyrics during worship because no one wants to be the person who doesn't know the words, right? So they have a whole bunch of tips on how to do that. There's a whole post dedicated to hand raising called the 10 styles. I'm not even going to try to demonstrate them, but it's pretty funny. And then the last one, and this one hits me close to home, proofreading your way through worship. All right? Have you ever done that? You're singing along and you notice, oh, that word is not spelled right. (laughs) This is a real problem for me. Again, I was at this conference a couple weeks ago, and the very first kind of like main session, 
the speaker was my friend Nate. He's a pastor down in Monterey. And Nate is a tall guy with this really big manly beard and a very deep, he's got like the most awesome preaching voice. I'm a little bit, I covet it a little bit. I'm a little jealous of that. So he's up there and again, he's just this very compelling figure and he's teaching and he's getting towards the middle of his time and he's really starting to get into it and he's making this big point and there's this gigantic screen behind him, like all the way from the floor to the ceiling and almost all the way across the wall, this massive screen. And most of the time as he was speaking, just the logo of the conference is being projected on that. But all of a sudden, in the middle of his teaching, the lyrics from the songs that we had just sung start flashing up at first very slowly, just kind of like boom, 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 and then they speed up. They start going like faster and faster and faster, and then they're basically like strobing through. I'm like sort of fascinated by this, and at the same time, like I should look away, I'm gonna get a headache, it's going so fast. And then all of a sudden, again, Nate has no idea this is going on, preaching his heart out. All of a sudden, the screen goes blank, and then this little graphic pops up that says, this is where the lyrics go. And that's exactly what it looked like. Now, people, as they were all experienced this together, were sort of tracking with this, like everyone could see that it was happening, and there was a little bit of laughing. It's a pastor's conference, though, so everyone's supposed to be, like, really mature and go, like, oh, yeah, this happens in my church all the time. There was one person, though, who just lost it completely in this room of a 1,000 people, and it was me. It was very embarrassing. Definitely felt like the associate pastor moment. Now, again, all this silliness aside, my issues with lyrics and misspellings and issues like that aside, what this blog is doing is sort of poking fun at all of the ways we reduce this really big, grand concept of worship to singing and to styles and maybe even more importantly to our preferences, what we like. So again, I think to help us understand why we sing when we get together on Sunday mornings, we need to begin by considering this word worship, and we need a bigger definition of worship than just music style. Now, when you read through scripture, when you read through your Bible, you will see the word worship show up in a lot of different places. For example, you might read something like this. This is from the Psalms. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Or maybe you're reading through something that Jesus says like this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Or another spot in the New Testament, you might read something like this. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Okay, three very different passages of scripture, but in each case, this English word worship shows up, is used in these translations. Now, when you go and you dig in a little bit to the original languages, there's actually three different words, a different word in each one of these passages. So Psalm 95, this is an Old Testament poem written in Hebrew. Hebrew is a very image-driven language. It evokes an idea, a picture. The word translated worship here is the word shakah. Everybody say shakah. Hebrew is also really fun to say out loud. Now, shakah means to lower oneself, to fall down, to lie face down in front of someone. And it's paired in that psalm with bow down. But it's not just like, oh, we're not worthy. It's like throwing yourself down on the ground, in the dirt, face down, in reverence, in front of 
someone or something, and in particular in front of someone important, like a king or a dignitary. Okay, that's the Old Testament. That's Shekah. In the New Testament, where Jesus says that we are to worship in spirit and in truth, the word translated worship is the word proskuneo. Proskuneo is a Greek word, and it literally means to kiss towards, to kiss. There's still this sense of reverence, like you would do this to someone important, but much more of a relational intimacy involved here, right? And then finally, that verse from Romans 12, this pretty famous verse, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your true and proper worship. This is also a Greek word, and the word is latreia, and it literally means service. Okay, And it refers to some sort of physical action, like sweeping the floor or setting a table. So again, three very different words, but all of them are translated into English as worship. I think they help kind of build a picture for what worship is all about. Sometimes it's bowing down, it's reverence, it's awe. Other times there's this connotation of intimacy, of relationship, connectedness. And then sometimes there's this physical act. There's something that we do very tangibly to express worship. And I think as we sort of build this picture, we get the sense that worship is fundamentally a response. It has to do with how we see ourselves in relationship to God. Now, one more step here, one more step further. In the book of Revelation, that weird little book at the end of your Bible, Actually, it's a book about worship as much as it is about anything else. Revelation gives us this incredible picture where all of these things come together. And if you read through the book, particularly chapters 4 through 7, you see this incredible gathering. It's sort of the ultimate worship gathering. And the focal point of this gathering is God. He is at the center of the scene, and he's seated on a throne. And I found this amazing chair somewhere in our church this week, and I thought that would be a great prop. So this chair is up here to kind of remind us that when we worship, we are gathering around this throne. And as you read through this scene, you see that God is on this throne, in this chair, at the center of the action, and around him are all these circles going out as far as the eye can see of people and the rest of creation, and they are worshiping. They're shikaiing. There's this sense of intimacy with this king. They're experiencing relationship and they're serving. All these things coming together in one picture. And as they do this, as they focus all of their attention on the king who is seated on this throne, they do what? They sing. They sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Our English word worship means to give worth to something. And again, I think you see that in this picture, giving worth to the king who is at the center of all things. There's also, I think, something very profound, even psychologically, about this picture of worship, about remembering that there is a center to the universe, and it is not me. It's not us. So worship is about responding to God. It's about the right ordering of the world. God in his proper place, us in our proper place. 
God at the center of all things, of all the action, and then we respond to that. We acknowledge that. We give worth to this God. So worship, so much more than singing songs. And yet singing is a vital aspect of what it means to worship, what it means to rightly order the world around the reality of this God who is at the center of all things. So this brings us finally to our text for today, Luke chapter 1, Mary's song. A lot of times it's called the Magnificat. That's the Latin word. That's the sort of the first word in that song in Luke chapter 1. If you are familiar with the Christmas story, you're familiar with Mary. And just a couple verses before this song, we are introduced to Mary, this poor, young, probably just barely a teenager, peasant girl who is told you are going to be the mother of Jesus, the long-awaited Savior of our people, the people of Israel. And not just the Savior of our people, but the Savior of the whole world. You are going to be his mother. And of course, this is going to happen outside of her relationship with her fiancé, soon-to-be husband, Joseph. And so the implications here for Mary's world are huge. Joseph would have every right to just leave her and go find another woman. Mary's community would have had every right to excommunicate her, tell her to get out of here. You've shamed us. And if all of that were to happen, then there's this huge question of how am I going to take care of and provide for this child, this fairly important child? So a terrifying moment, I think, for anyone. And so how does Mary respond? What would you do in this moment? How would you respond? Mary sings. She sings. Let's read her song again. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, a couple observations about Mary's song. First, this song is a response to what God has done. Mary doesn't say, she doesn't sing, I'm awesome because, you know, I'll be blessed because I'm so great. Thank you, God, for acknowledging that. No, she says, I will be called blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me. This song is all about God, who he is and what he has done for Mary and for her people. N.T. Wright says that Mary's song is a celebration of God. God has taken the initiative. God, the Lord, the Savior, the powerful one, the holy one, the merciful one, the faithful one. God is the ultimate reason to celebrate. So Mary responds to what God has done. She also responds to what he will do. Part of this song is about the future. Now think about it and look at that text again. Are there still proud people in our world? Are there still unjust rulers in our world? Are there still people who go hungry? Are there those who don't have enough and others who have more than they need? Of course, of course. But Mary sings as if all of that has been reversed, as if it has already happened. 
So I think Mary's song helps us understand a little bit more why we sing. So we sing because worship is subversive. There's this long, ancient tradition in Christianity of using songs to say no to the status quo, to the way things are, to the way things are going in our world. When we sing together, we remind ourselves that worshiping God with our whole lives means saying no to other gods, to other stories that are at play in our world. Stories like consumerism, the story that says, I can buy my way to happiness. Worship reminds us that everything we need comes from this God who is seated on the throne at the center of all things, the creator of all things. We say no to stories like materialism, the story that all there is is matter, what we can see and feel and measure. Singing together reminds us there's more to this world than what we can see. Stories like individualism, the story that I am on this throne. I am the center of the universe. Worship, singing together, reorients us around the throne, at the foot of the king, a part of a community. Now, of course, there's a whole bunch of other stories out there, but again, the idea here is that when we sing together, we declare that we worship God, the Mighty One, the Lord Most High, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of of the world. And so worship is subversive because we are opting out of all of these other cultural stories. We're saying no to all of these other gods. Worship is subversive and it is also transformative. Mary sings as if this promised future has already happened. And there's a fancy $10 theological word for this eschatological realism which is a fancy way of saying we can experience God's promised future right here, right now. And again, Christians have used songs all throughout history to do this. You hear it in the blues. You hear it in hymns. You hear it in old bluegrass and folk songs. You hear it in the spiritual songs sung by slaves. About those spirituals, one author writes, they sang themselves out of the present and into a future that they believed was real and tangible. And they believed that if they sang hard enough, they could bring that future into the here and now. So we sing because it is subversive, because it is transformative. And for those of us who are sort of used to this, been around for a while, and maybe worship singing together has become a little bit boring or just part of what we do maybe you need to remember this morning that worship singing together is this subversive transformative act this act of saying no and of bringing the future reality into being now one more question before we close and take communion who is seated on that throne for you because someone or something is. David Foster Wallace, in his brilliant commencement speech at Kenyon College, this is about 10 years old now. If you've never heard it or read it, I'd highly encourage you to check it out. It's fascinating. He says this, There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. We all worship something. 
in his speech, Wallace, who, by the way, is not a Jesus follower, goes on to list a couple of possibilities, money, power, sex, and intellect. And he goes into detail about how each of those things is a dead end. Worshiping any of those things is a dead end. It will, as he says, eat you alive. So maybe it's one of those things. Maybe for you it's a relationship. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's the possibility of those things, the possibility of a relationship or a family or a better job. Maybe it's something in your past. If you were with us last week, Albert talked about the things in our past that we need to let go of. And that can be good things or bad things. Maybe it's something in your past. What is on that throne for you? Who sits in that chair? The good news of Jesus is that we don't have to worship those other gods, those things that eat us alive. We don't need to look to those things anymore. We are invited. We get to worship the creator of all things, the king who sits at the center of all the action of the universe. And the really amazing thing, the really good news of Jesus is that we don't have to do anything to earn the right to sit at the feet of that throne. We don't have to do anything to worship this God. We don't have to get ourselves together first. We can simply come and bow and kiss towards and serve this king because he has already done everything that was necessary to make that possible. It is done. And so what do we do in response? We worship. We sing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the space to sit and think about these things, the ability to gather here together on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings to walk through our liturgy. There's nothing special or magical about it, but it is simply a way for us to frame both the order and the chaos, the two kind of these big cosmic truths of our world, sin and redemption. And this morning, God, as we focus particularly on the question of why we sing, may we have a new vision, a bigger vision for worship what it means, how we respond to the truth about who you are and what you have done. And in particular, God, I pray this morning for all of us that we would think and ponder who for us sits on that throne. And we may at some level acknowledge that it is you, but in reality allow other things to take that place. And so this morning we want to come before you and repent of those things, turn those things over to you. We want to rightfully place you back where you belong. And as we do that, may we respond to you in worship and song and in all the different aspects of what it means to worship the God of the universe, Jesus. Amen.